Do you like to learn about random wild stuff? You know, the things you didn't think you needed to know about, then realize you should? Then welcome to Nothing Off Limits, the podcast that gives you one place to go for something different. Impress your next party guest with your unusual body of knowledge. And if you dig the show, get more information at ladyfoxentertainment.com and subscribe, rate, or review. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Nothing Off Limits. As part of Kink Week, we've got the amazing Dr. Michael Aaron. Dr. Aaron is a nationally certified sex therapist and clinical sexologist, specializing in working with sexual minorities, alternative kink polyamory lifestyles, sex workers, discordant desire and infidelity in couples, sexual dysfunction and anxiety, gender orientation confusion, and sexual compulsivity. He is a certified sex therapist by ASECT and is a diplomat of the American Board of Sexology. He has been interviewed in numerous media outlets, podcasts, and magazines, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Cosmo, Men's Health, Women's Health, Men's Fitness, Prevention, and Vice. He is a member of the advisory board of Men's Fitness Magazine and is the author of the book Modern Sexuality, The Truth About Sex and Relationships, where he presents an overwhelmingly strong case for sexual diversity and the exploration of a variety of sexual expressions from a normative standpoint, helping readers understand that their own desires and those of others can happily exist on the same continuum. You can find out a lot more information about Dr. Aaron on his website, which is drmichaelaaronnyc.com. Welcome, Dr. Aaron. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Great to have you. Let's get started. Um, how did you get involved in this interesting field of yours? Well, um, my initial start was in the, a number of years ago in the, in the previous decade where I was working in the field of harm reduction. And uh, I was working at a, um, a clinic that um, did outreach with people who were intravenous drug users, people who were um, sex workers. A lot of these people were also, um, ten- tended to be transgender sex workers. Um, they were doing street sex work, which we can talk about, which is different than indoor sex work. And so these were vulnerable populations. And harm reduction basically meant... Uh, instead of trying to change their behavior or stop them from doing something, I would just make sure that they're safe and, and make sure that they had resources that were available to them when and if they were ready to change and do something different. So I would provide clean needles to IV drug users. Oh. I would give condoms and supplies to transgender sex workers. And that was my start in the mental health field. And um, most of the clients or the most of the population that I worked with were transgender sex workers. And, um, and it, it was a very kind of um, very strong learning experience for me because I saw how much individuals were uh, pathologized and outcasted for their sexuality. Um, these were individuals who typically uh, were from different parts of the country. They could be from small towns in Texas or South Carolina or somewhere. And they were basically kicked out of their home for being transgender, for being different. And they came to New York City to try to have a better life and to meet like-minded people. And having had no education, oftentimes they were kicked out as teens. Um, The only kind of form of income they had was sex work. And, um, and so this was a, a very impressionable lesson for me in terms of how our society pathologizes sexuality. And as I continued on in my uh, career progression, I, 
I came to the conclusion that it's not just individuals who are in a certain minority group that is you can visually see that they're different from kind of mainstream society, but um, people of all walks of life, people that you would never think anything of, um, um, are experiencing also a lot of turmoil uh, about their sexuality based on society's norms, society's expectations, the thoughts and opinions of people close to them. So sexuality is really um, a core aspect of our uh, identity, a core aspect of uh, our human uh, well-being and self-esteem. And it's also one of the most stigmatized and conflicted uh, experiences for people. Well, let's talk about that because, I mean, I think that that's, it's, it's so pervasive, the, the fact that society makes these messages or creates these messages that make us afraid to talk about it. Why do you think this is going on still in 2016? Well, as I said in my book, I think there's very powerful, this is in chapter two, or no, chapter three, I believe, I talk about the social pressures uh, on conformity. And I think that there's... Um, social forces at play um, that particularly focus on sexuality as a source of creating in or out groups. So in, mm. in the book, I talk about what are called assumption groups, which basically there was this uh, psychoanalyst, Wilfred Bion, who uh, did group therapy work he was not a sociologist, but he worked with groups in his therapy room, and he saw these different kind of dynamics in play, and so he came to some theories. And he noticed that there's three things that groups typically try to do when they're trying to form and exist. Number one, they're looking for um, typically some sort of a leader, some sort of authority figure. Mm -hmm. Number two, they're looking to differentiate themselves from others who are outside of the group. So they're looking for enemies or outcasts and so on. And number three, they're looking to survive. So they're looking to procreate, so to speak, on a sociological level. They're looking to procreate. And so um, sexuality is kind of in the crosshairs because instinct of groups is to procreate. So they're going to immediately uh, look down upon or pathologize something that doesn't, uh, that, a sexual activity that isn't procreative in nature. Mm. Um with any any kind of sexual behavior that's deemed non-normative, whether it's homosexuality or, or some sort of kink, um, that is something that is very easy to focus on. So if you're looking for um, an outgroup or to create outsiders or to create deviants from which you can then say, well, those are the enemies and we're the in-group and mm -hmm. that's the outgroup, mm -hmm. sexuality is one of the first things to focus on. It's one of the most obvious ones. Do you think that most of your clients struggle with sexuality because of this? They were born into an environment where their parents were very conservative and did not have an expressive uh, mindset when it came to sexuality? Um, absolutely. You know, um, I think, in fact, the psychiatric slash mental health community is also coming to that conclusion. So just as a brief aside, the DSM-5, which is a diagnostic and statistical manual, which is the guidebook for mental health clinicians that came out a couple years ago, the latest version, when they talked about sexuality, they made some changes. One of the changes was that someone can be defined as having a, a sexual pathology if their disturbance about it is caused by society. 
So that's a major difference that um, this this new edition of the book really made clear that they wanted to make a contrast between people's internal struggles that were self somehow self-created versus people's problems that were um, as a result of social stigma or um, of people in their environment pathologizing them or looking down at them. Wow, but it seems like such a crossover because whatever you're dealing with inside of yourself could be a result of how you've been influenced by your family, which Absolutely. your family was influenced by society. So how do you make that delineation? Well, very briefly, somebody who um, is compulsive, and we'll talk about sex addiction in a moment, but someone who's compulsive and can't stop what they're doing, mm-hmm. um, that, and as a result, maybe they lost they spent all their money on sex workers or they lost their job or they got in trouble with the law or something like that. That's not something where... um, You can't blame that on society. You can't blame that. But for the most part, to answer your original question, for the most part, when people are struggling internally with some kind of shame, um, self-doubt, insecurities, questioning themselves, um, the, the biggest contributor to that is social norms and um, and social expectations. Do you think that, you know, movies like Fifty Shades of Grey or the book are helping shift that, that societal, I don't know, message, imprint, whatever you want to call it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think Fifty Shades of Grey came out, what, about five or six years ago. Yeah. And wow, it's been that long already. <laughs> it's, it's been that long. And then the movie came out last year. Yeah. Uh, it, it was a tremendous success. My understanding is over 100 million people purchased the book and or the movie. Um, and I think that what we're seeing right now, especially with social media, is there is a lot more awareness about um, kink, um, about BDSM. I think that, um, 50 shades of gray opened up that conversation to a lot of people that, uh, normally were closed off to it or maybe didn't know much about it at all. Mm-hmm. I do want to say that 50 shades of gray though is kind of a caricature. Yeah. Um, it's not, I think there's some issues with that because it portrays stock characters and it does show Christian gray as someone who has uh, sadistic impulses and dominant impulses because of childhood trauma, mm-hmm. which I think, again, plays to some sort of pathology stereotype. Yeah. Um, so there are issues with that book, don't get me wrong. But at the same time, there is some value in it too because I think that a lot of people um, heard about it because it was a hit. They read it. Uh, my understanding is it wasn't necessarily a literary classic, but it did resonate with a lot of people. And um, it gave them permission to to explore more and to ask more questions. Absolutely. Well, you know, you mentioned something about this whole idea of Christian Grey being portrayed as, you know, coming from childhood trauma. And that's why he became sadistic and, and got involved in this, this kink lifestyle. So that's a great segue into talking about typical myths that people carry or that society carries about that lifestyle or about any kind of sexuality in general? Do you want to start diving into those? Because there are a bunch of them. Sure. Well, in the book, I talk about five main myths. And and the first one is that sexuality is learned and can be changed. And I think one thing, important thing to say before I go deeper into it is I'm speaking from the perspective of a therapist. And so what I mean by that, why that's particularly important 
is because I'm very plugged into what is happening in my profession, both currently and historically. And for the predominant period of time, historically, psychotherapy has um, taken on this kind of social constructionist position, which means that most things uh, are learned. Therefore, through psychotherapy, they can be unlearned. And as a result, whatever sexual problem you have, we can help you to change it around totally or something like that. And that kind of has been kind of an underlying premise of psychotherapy since it began. And as a result, um, the field has created some harm. Um, Reparative therapy comes to mind. Um, It's a therapy that for, um, for minors is illegal in a few states now. I think that that law, other states will impose those kinds of laws too, because it's shown to be very harmful. And now, uh, are you talking about those camps where they try to change, uh, like a young person's inclination toward being homosexual, and they yeah. try to they try to make you straight? That's right. So, it which is disgusting, under, in my opinion. Agreed, um, and it comes under two terms. You may have heard of it either as reparative or conversion therapy. Yeah. Um, But but you know what, though? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, But up until 1973, the mental health field viewed homosexuality as a mental illness. And this kind of treatment in terms of converting gays was sort of standard practice um, for the longest. Now, if we trace the history of psychotherapy to Freud... Um, because he was sort of the pioneer of psychoanalysis dating, let's say, going back to the 1890s. We're talking about 120 years. Mm -hmm. For 80 or 90 years of it, homosexuality was seen as a pathology, and and healing a a homosexual was viewed as part of standard practice. Wow. Um, and, And even though the DSM, again, it's a diagnostic and statistical manual, in 1973 said homosexuality is not a pathology, it still kind of stayed on the books until 1980, where um, it was called egodystonic homosexuality, which meant if you feel egodystonic means you don't feel good about it, and egosyntonic mm-hmm. means you feel good about it. Mm-hmm. So if you had egodystonic, which means you were gay and you felt bad about it, you were still mentally ill. So that was on the books until wow. 1980. Um, and even still, even though this was still off the books, these various forms of therapy still have been practiced and are still being practiced today. So um, it's a very dark uh, aspect of psychotherapy, the history of psychotherapy. And, um, and that's the lens from which I'm seeing this because I'm seeing this as a member of my profession as well as working with the clients who come to me. Mm-hmm. So I think that this is a very big myth, maybe not necessarily amongst people in certain enclaves or kind of um, progressive liberal areas of urban centers, but it's still something that a lot of people subscribe to. God, that that is so surprising to me. You'd think by now, especially with, I mean, everything's in the media now about transgender. I mean, everybody's going nuts about the bathrooms and all of that stuff. You'd think that more people would be shifting towards that. So it's kind of disturbing to know that even in your, like the clinical community, that Mm -hmm. there are still people who still believe that old set of ideas. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's surprising. And, um, look, I mean, there was a conference 
that I saw advertised on Facebook. I'm not going to give too many details, but it was in uh, the United Kingdom. It was in London, I believe. And it was a, a, a conference for psychoanalysts. And the entire conference was about how to fix perverts, perversions. So the language that they use, perversion, pervert, we're going to fix them. I mean, these are conferences that are going on in 2016 in London. Well, who's to say that it needs to be fixed unless it's hurting someone? Well, I mean, <laughs> I agree with you. But here's the thing. There's a, you know, human beings are very social animals and they want to belong to a group. Right. Goes and back if, to that again. Yeah. And if they're partner, their spouse, their family, their community, their church, whatever it is, sees them in a certain way. There's a very powerful forces that wants that they want to belong and they want to change. They, they don't want to be who they are because they want to fit in with that group. Did you ever see Benny Hill? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> Let's talk about perversion. <laughs> well, look, yeah, Betty, I mean, look, this is British humor, um, and it was a, a certain time and place. But look, I don't like the word pervert. I think perversion is, is, a, is a very kind of... It's uh, so negative, right very off the negative bat. Term. Yeah. Very negative term, you know. Dirty. Yeah, very filthy stuff. Um, but getting back to this myth, so there's a few things I want to clarify. So... Um, there's also evidence that sexuality is fluid, and and let me kind of explain that these are not um, mutually exclusive things. So when I say sexuality can also be fluid, what I mean is that somebody discovers something that they didn't realize they were into, and they roll with it, and they say, wow, I really, wow, I never knew I liked this. But what's happening there is it's more of an uncovering. It's more of like, there was always that tendency, there was always that there, mm -hmm. and they uncovered it, they stumbled upon it, they realized it, rather than something was transformed. Mm. So there is fluidity through exploration, but at the same time, if you are wired a certain way in the sense that you feel like, this is, my, this is what I'm attracted to, these are the kinds of things I like to do, there's all of this, you're not going to change that, and it's pretty hardwired. And... Um, let's start with what's most hardwired and what's least hardwired. Okay, so gender is gender and orientation are very hardwired. You know, so um, that's good just, for you to say because I think a lot of people debate on that. Um, well, yeah, there are debates, but let me kind of clarify that a bit. So, first of all, there's a different. Let me just define terms. There's a difference between gender and sex. So, sex is you're born with male genitals or female genitals. That's your sex. Mm -hmm. Gender is more of kind of a, your outward expression. It's your mindset. Do you, do you feel um, like you take on kind of more traditionally masculine behaviors and roles? Um, or do, you, do you tend to feel more feminine here? Or th is it sort of like a mix? I mean, it, gender is the outward expression, and it's, that's much more of a social construction in the sense that mm. I, mean, I think that there's there are some biological imperatives and I talk about in the book so for example men in general are more kind of object oriented in the way that they kind of th their brains are a little bit more rigid and a little bit more analytical and female brains are a little bit more or this is in the aggregate okay so I'm not saying I, I know there's different unique individuals sure. in the big picture if you just look at a bell curve in general yeah, yeah just from like a big macro viewpoint. If you take a look at a bell curve, 
a majority of the men are going to be more kind of object oriented where they're into technology and shiny objects and mm-hmm. gadgets and stuff like that and women tend to not because they're worse at it or anything just because of their interest level they tend to gravitate towards more like kind of uh, careers or things that involve other people other human beings and mm-hmm. social interactions mm-hmm. and that's what the research shows so so for example i think that there are um biological and hormonal reasons why. Um, so I, I can't say that gender is completely a social construct, I don't believe, but I think it's um, there's a big piece of it that is a social construct. So in other words, someone who is born a certain way, who is born as a male, they may not feel very masculine and they and, and their gender expression is, is non-conforming. Mm-hmm. So they feel like they want to maybe wear more femi- feminine clothes. Right, or play with Barbies. Play with Barbies. Yeah. And so that's gender. That's gender. Okay. So gender gender is not pure sex, not pure biology. It's sort of a mix of kind of uh, there is some biological constructs to it, but it's also our traditional views of what men and women is is a social construct to a large degree. And people who are gender nonconforming, they they um, deviate from that from that social norm. Right? But did you say that that gender that orientation is hardwired? Yeah. So I think that yes. So um, individuals who um, are transgender typically say, "Look, you know, I felt like I was a woman in a man's body or a man in a woman's body since I was a kid." Mm-hmm. And and I just feel this is how I have felt, and uh, I have a number of. Uh, people I know personally, colleagues and so on. Obviously, I worked with the transgender community for a number of years. And overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, these are these are the things that I heard, where they would say, I knew that I sort of didn't conform to these you know, social norms of what gender is from a very young age. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing that happened to me. There was no trauma. There was no right. incident. There was nothing that turned me from feeling I was a boy to feeling like I was a girl, it was a part of me. You know, they talk about how it even starts in the womb. So is there anything that like the the pregnant mom might be doing that like maybe she's more particularly interested in certain things that is influencing the baby or is this just completely hardwired and has the pregnant mom has no influence on this? There's been studies done where they analyzed brains of all kinds of people, straight men, straight women, gay men, gay women. Um, and, and they kind of found that um, gay men had some parts of their brain, such as the amygdala, for example, that was more similar to women than to men, mm-hmm. than to straight women than to straight men, mm-hmm. um, and vice versa. So we see some in the aggregate again, in the big picture, we see uh, differences in the way the brain is structured. Wow. And... Um, but when we take a look at genetics, and I want to go back to answering your, your question specifically, when we take a look at genetics, um, they, when researchers want to understand how much something is heritable, how much is something that is purely genetic, what they typically do is they take a look at identical twins mm-hmm. because they share the same DNA. Right. And um, if you take a look at the um, general population, most studies show that the number of gay men is about three three percent of the population are, are gay men. Okay, three that's low. Five. That seems low to me. But, yeah, 
but the number of studies have shown that. So I, I we don't really have good data on it. So I'm just going to roll with that with those okay. numbers because mm-hmm. that's keeps coming up over and over. Okay. Um, but when we take a look at how many identical twins, if one is gay, the other is also gay. It's not a hundred percent. It's any. It's d- different studies show different things, but let's say it's about on average. The studies showed on average about forty percent. So if you are gay, your identical twin has a forty percent chance of also being gay. So it's not three percent, but it's also not a hundred. Mm-hmm. And you would think if it was purely genetic, it would be a hundred, right? Because it's the same DNA. So what researchers uh, speculate, and there's a lot of advancement on this, is there's a growing field called epigenetics, which basically says that um, the way that our genes are expressed in our behavior is actually a combination of our genes plus the environment. So what the environment does is it switches certain genes on or off. So those two identical twins may have the same genes, but for one, it's switched on, and for the other, it's switched off. Mm -hmm. Now, when I talk about environment, I'm not saying at five years old, so-and-so happened. I'm saying these gene switches, the light turning on or off, happened in the womb. And so when I talk about um, environment, I'm talking about the environment of the womb. Was there some sort of like, hormonal surge? Oh. Was there some was there something going on? Um, wow. While the mother was pregnant, where one child's gene was turned on while the others kept uh, kept being off. Um, uh, there was a researcher, there was a psychologist out of UCLA who actually identified um, parts of a gene that he thought was res- was um, responsible um, for like where that turn, you know, that on off switch was located on the gene. He, he felt like he identified it. So there's like really fast advancements happening in the field. And that's fascinating. But right now where we're at, and so this is why I'm talking about hardwired, but I'm also not dismissing the environment because, because really where we're at is what appears to be happening is, um, that, our um, our behavior is influenced through this epigenetic, not necessarily genetic, but epigenetic kind of effect. Well, we have certain genes, and through the environment, in the case of orientation, this is the environment in the room, not at five years old, but this is something that's beyond the control of anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, one child... As genes is turned on while the others is still off, and one child is homosexual and the other is not. And so, as a result, identical twins can um, uh, have different orientations, but they're more, much more likely to have the same orientation than just anyone in the general population. Wow. But that leads me to thinking about specifically, you know, people who are inclined towards a kink lifestyle. Is that part of that hardwiring as well? Okay, so this is, remember I talked about where there's maybe kind of like an onion where the, the, middle, the, the, the middle of it is the most hardwired and then the outer layers are less hardwired. I think kink and BDSM 
um, there's different folks who do it for different reasons. Okay, so let me explain what I mean. So when we take a look at, and I want to, there's a number of terms I use in the book, and I, um, there's a lot of overlap, but I want to clarify my terms so that there's no confusion. So in the book, I differentiate between BDSM and fetishes, okay? okay? So for example, so BDSM, just for the audience, is a combination of three things, which is um, uh, bondage and discipline, BD, DS, which is dominance and submission, SM is sadomasochism. And so these are things that are typically happen in a kind of a relational setting. So if you're doing bondage and discipline, you're tying somebody up, right? You're doing mm -hmm. something with somebody. Mm -hmm. If you're being dominant, you're not just dominant with the wall. You're dominant with somebody. So B BDSM is relational, okay? okay. And, and what research shows is that uh, there's been a number of studies, not that many, but still over the years there's been a, a bunch that have tried to find out who are these people who do BDSM. And Every year, it seems, the studies seem to show it was mainly men, and now it's virtually even. It's still like a little bit more men, but it's um, kind of more of an even mix wow. between men and women. So that's BDSM, and, and it's relational nature. Now, a fetish is something that you have a specific arousal pattern to something that's inanimate, Right, and and then partialism is it's a part of the body. So hmm. a, a foot fetish would be a partialism. A shoe fetish is is a fetish. Oh. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be in a BDSM, BDSM context, right? right? Okay, you could just um, be aroused by shoes and masturbate to it, and you're not really doing anything BDSM there. Okay, mm -hmm. there's a lot of overlap, but I'm also differentiating these. Why? Because overwhelmingly, the research shows that the majority of fetishists, not BDSM, which is even basically men and women, but the overwhelming majority of fetishists is male. Okay. Hmm. Okay. And and um, is that that goes back to what you talked about earlier about them males being object oriented? That's right. There was a study done by Simon Baron Cohn, who is a uh, researcher out of Cambridge, I believe. Um, he's the cousin of, Sa of Sasha Baron Cohen, who plays Borat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he. So we got a little did, bit of comedy, a little bit of yeah. science. <laughs> yeah, it's just a very, you know, dynamic family. Yeah, clearly. And uh, so he um, was doing research on uh, with, with babies because he, um, his main area of, of study isn't sexuality, but autism. And what he found is, is that the majority of individuals suffering from autism are male. And he um, believed that it was due to uh, testosterone levels. The testosterone, higher testosterone, somehow played a part in forming the brain in a way where the person had autism. And so what he did... Um, as part of one study is he took one-day-old babies, right? So these are babies who have had virtually no social learning. What kind of learning has a baby had in one day? Right. And he showed both male and female babies. He showed them either or both, an object, and there was a person smiling at them and so on. And the majority 
of the boys looked at the objects and the majority of the girls primarily looked at the faces. Mm-hmm. And as we know with autism and something something that's more higher functioning on that spectrum, which is Asperger's, um, especially those higher functioning individuals with Asperger's, they, um, they tend to be very kind of... Um, rigid and object-oriented in the way they do and see things. Okay. And they have a, uh, a condition, but he theorized it was due to uh, testosterone levels and somehow maybe there was a testosterone spike, but whatever. It, th- those are nuances that are irrelevant here, but it was due to testosterone. And similarly, he believed, due to boys, one-year-old boys, having um, obviously higher testosterone levels than girls, their brains were masculinized in a way that their focus was on these kinds of more rigid kind of, you know, gadgets and things and objects rather than on the human connection and the face. Hmm. And so when we take a look at, there's been a number of books written about people who develop fetishes due to some sort of trauma. So there's a few books that I cited in my book where um, there were some cases cited in those books where one person had some traumatic event where some insects crawled on him, and then after that he was aroused by insects crawling on him. So there's, there's cases of people who can say, look, there's, there is a specific event that happened to me that was very intense, very life-transforming, and after that it became an arousal pattern for me. Mm-hmm. But but um, when there's been a number of studies, and at least half, if not the majority of people, typically say, I can't remember anything happening to me. Nothing ever happened to me. I always was into this stuff. Or if they remembered something happening, like like say someone uh, was a is a foot fetishist, and they remember, yeah, the first time I realized that I was into feet, was when my cousin put his feet in my face or whatever like that, but that doesn't prove causation. So that that may just be the first time they realized it. It does. It's not because that was caused by it. Right. 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 So so, so that we, that goes back to the whole idea of talking about the myths about sexuality. That's one where people think it's caused by some sort of trauma. Right. Right. So it's ca- so so for a majority of people, there is no incident or trauma, and even for those where they say they can point to something happening, I would say, well, why is it that the overwhelming majority of people who are object, uh, uh, um, into sexualized an object are men? Well, because they're already vulnerable and wired to be object-oriented. Mm-hmm. So there's already that hard wiring. Either, the, either there's no explanation at all, which then you have to wonder, were they born this way? And we don't have the science on that. We do on orientation, but not necessarily this. But even those people who can point to an incident, we we have to ask ourselves, are were they vulnerable to begin with because of the way their brain right, was? Right, right. Well, I'm interested because you were saying that BDSM generally has more men than women, um, you know, entertaining the lifestyle, right? According, according to, to studies, according yeah. to studies. But yet you said BDSM is a relational type of lifestyle. So wouldn't that be then higher with women? Well, good question. So let me point to some more studies to answer that question. There was a few studies that came out recently about people's fantasies, okay? Mm -hmm. And one study in particular asked 
1,500 people, all kinds of people of all ages, men, women, um, about their fantasies. And these were all, all kinds of out there, let's say out there. I'm not saying that in a pathological way. I'm just saying like stuff that people don't typically do on a daily basis. Okay. okay. So these were things that involved um, dominant stuff and submission stuff and tying up and all kinds of stuff, including like uh, body fluids and stuff. They even asked about pedophilia and zoophilia. So they asked about all kinds of stuff. And they found that... Zoophilia just made me feel a little funny inside. Yeah, I have well, to admit. I, I don't blame you. So, but, but my point was that they asked about all kinds of things. And, they were and very, so did pedophilia. Yeah. Gotcha. Anyway, go on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what they, so these were questions about fantasies, okay? And so they found that, uh, with the exception of pedophilia, zoophilia, and a few other things, none of the fantasies were rare. And most of the BDSM type of fantasies, um, over 50% of the people said that they had at least sometimes fantasized about that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But the big difference that they saw was that men were more likely to say that they were willing to do it and try it or had done it than women. Okay. So this is to answer your question, why are there more people who, even by a slim margin, there was one study that came out recently that said the ratio was like 12 to 9, 12 men for 9 women who are in intermediate so close. Yeah. close. But then you take a look at studies where both men and women have a lot of these fantasies but men are more lo- likely to say that they're willing to act on these fantasies. And I would say there are social reasons for that. So men are more likely to feel disinhibited, maybe. Maybe they feel like that they wouldn't be judged for doing it, but while women may feel that they may be more likely to be judged. But I think that these two studies, these two points of data, that there's slightly more men into BDSM, but there's also slightly more men who are willing to act on fantasies, I think they kind of go together. Now, we talked earlier about um, gender and how that's um, that's a personal thing, a personal experience. So when you say men versus women in this context, what about the men who have more leanings toward feminine traits? Does that still apply to them? So gay men were in this study, I would assume. I, I, my understanding is it wasn't broken down by orientation. It okay. was just broken down I was by, just curious. by gender. But again, gay men are, um, my, my hypothesis would be that gay men would um, show similar results in terms of the types of fantasies and the willingness to act on it as heterosexual men. I don't think there would be much of a difference. Okay. So that's interesting. So getting back to the overall myths um, that society carries about sexuality in general. So I think we just covered a big one, which is that if you're interested in BDSM or a kink lifestyle, that doesn't mean that you were uh, abused as a child, right? No. In fact, there were a number of studies that came out that showed no pathology. But what they did show, um, and I talk about this extensively in the book, is that people who are into this kind of lifestyle tend to have different personality traits. And 50% of personality, roughly 50%, is genetic. Wow, okay. There's something called the BFI, which is a test called the Big Five Inventory that tests for the five main personality traits. And when I mean five main personality traits, what I mean is that over many, many years of trying to conduct um, research on personality, what scientists found is that there's five main traits that 
are core. They can't be divided any further. Okay? These are like the five main components of personality. And the acronym for it is OCEAN. So the first is O, openness to new experiences. So is this person adventurous? Are they willing to try new things? Are they more spontaneous? Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. C is conscientiousness. Is this person responsible? Are they on time? Do they do all the things that they need to get done? Um, e is either extra, is extroversion. The inverse would be introversion. So that basically means where do you get your energy? Do you get it when you're with people or when you're alone? A is agreeableness, which basically means how much of a team player are you? Are you very independent or do you fit in well with a group of people? And then N is neuroticism, which basically means how likely are you to have negative feeling states, whether it's depression or anxiety. Mm. And what they found is is that people who are poly and um, into a uh, BDSM scene or, or practice BDSM were off the charts high on O, openness to new experiences. Uh-huh. Okay. So, so this... So there's a number of people who do things for different reasons. Some are like really hardwired and they may experience BDSM as a kind of orientation. Like they, they, they knew they were into this when they were four years old. Mm-hmm. While there's other people who see it more as uh, one of my colleagues calls it serious leisure. Like they're really into it as a leisurely activity. But they're also more wired to, do, to they don't really experience it as an orientation. Mm. But they're also more um, wired to be prone to trying new adventurous things because they have the personality traits to be explorative. Wow. So there's a scale. There's yeah. like a range of how far you, are, you might want to go with this lifestyle or not. Yeah, is it like really a necessity for you? Yeah, because this is how like you like at your core, mm-hmm. or are you drawn to it because of the adventurous aspect and so right. on, and it's kind of leisurely for you? But yet, you know, if that's the case, you probably have personality traits which are fifty percent genetic, which make you tend to be adventurous in that way. That's wild to know. That's pretty awesome. So it's not like you um, have some sort of mental disease or anything of that sort. This is something that you, in many cases, you may have been born to just be more explorative and experimental. Exactly. That's right. And so that helps then debunk the myth that people who do BDSM are, are nuts in some way. So I'm glad that you covered that. What else? What are some other myths that we should talk about and clarify? Well, another myth is about what about intimacy, and, uh, and I have um, that kind of covers two myths. That's myth number three and four. Myth number three in my book is healthy sex needs to have intimacy, and number four is inti- intimacy means the same thing to everyone. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's cover no, that. No, it doesn't. <laughs> no, it does not. <laughs> and, and, and again, I'm speaking from the lens of a therapist. Um, knowing the norms within my community of professionals and seeing the kinds of narratives that my clients bring into the office, Mm -hmm. there is a big sort of idea that sex is about sort of like, I don't know, like this kind of lovey-dovey. And I'm not, when I say lovey-dovey, I'm not poking fun at it. It's, I'm not, but 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 I'm trying the to the romantic kind of, thing that you see yeah, in the movies. Yeah, this kind of eye gazing and the pillow talk, and it's all very sweet and all that. And there is there is an element of sex that's like that, but that's not the end all be all of sex. In fact, there was a psychologist. His name was Donald Mosher, who studied 
long people in long-term relationships, and he asked them, "What kind of you know? Tell me the kind of sex you have." And he found that there were three types of sex, and um, and he called them uh, uh, the first one it, he called trance, which basically means it's purely physical. So sort of like the genital kind of in and out, the genital friction. There's no emotions necessarily. There's nothing really psychologically going on. It's just it feels good. It's just physical in nature. And he called that trance. Mm -hmm. The second one he called role playing, which doesn't mean you're dressing up in costumes or anything, but it simply meant that there's a psychological element where you're playing out psychological themes. Maybe there is some aggression and some dominance and submission elements. And maybe there's some other elements of sort of like playing hard to get or or this or that or teasing and stuff like that. There's like the psychological co- component. Okay. And he called that uh, role playing. And then the third is partner engagement, which is primarily emotional, which is that really kind of, again, the romantic, the romantic the, ideal. the attachment stuff, mm-hmm. and and these are all very valid. In fact, what he found is is that when people had healthy sex, they were able to experience all three, not necessarily in the same event, but maybe one day it was the role playing, and another day it was partner engagement, or maybe it they experienced all three, not at the same time, but kind of they started out as trans and then they went to partner engagement and they went to role play and they went back to trans and, yeah. and, and it just kind of flowed. Mm-hmm. And so what he actually found is that actually where people were unhappy with their sex is when they were, un- were stuck in one and were unable to be fluid enough to yeah, explore the other two types of areas of sex. Wow. So if, so if you look at it in that lens, and I kind of was playful about it in the book, you could say someone who can only have romantic sex is, and 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 I'm kind of I want to make sure that pe- that people understand I'm being playful about this. I'm not really seriously trying to pathologize anyone, but but they're actually more limited or maybe a little bit more unhealthy, so to speak. Yeah, than who can have all three types? Agreed. I mean, in my opinion, in my experience, when I think about my own sexual experiences, yeah, if it has to be just one way, that's not going to work for me. Mm-hmm. But there's entire fields of therapy and schools of therapy that basically say sex is about the union of two souls and that kind of thing. And I think that it's, um, it causes damage because it makes people feel there's something wrong with yeah, that. Yeah, and you're also connecting sex with intimacy. So you're, you know, the myth that you list, healthy sex needs to have intimacy. No, sex can be on its own. That's right. It doesn't necessarily have to have any reason, which is actually myth five, that there must be a purpose. Um, you know, uh, sex uh, on an evolutionary scale has a procreation purpose, and no one can deny that. But actually what we find is a lot of evolutionary theorists believe that sex had not just procreation as its main goal, but sort of um, bonding. You know, people in the tribe, when they, we were hunters-gatherers, they bonded over sex. They It made people feel good and friendly towards each other. So uh, it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be about um, anything in particular. It doesn't have to be, uh, I think as, as a modern society, we've kind of outgrew this sort of procreation model, but it doesn't have to be about, um, uh, you know, some sort of great love story it could be just about people maybe just connecting Mm -hmm. and it just feels like hey we had a good time together and i I felt like i had a good night with you it was a good evening and 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 maybe there's nothing more to it than that right 
And that's probably difficult for a lot of people who, I don't know, I would call them purists or traditionalists who think that, you know, finding the perfect partner, the one who has to have all these characteristics of being romantic and the eye gazing, like you said, and and then that means that there's true bonding there. Um, all of it has to be in place. That's not necessarily true, which then leads me to when you work with your clients who are polyamorous or who have open relationships, how do they define intimacy in their relationships? Well, I think the beautiful thing is that people define it differently and it means different things for them. So I think that, um, you know, one thing about polyamorous people is that it's quite complex because um, a traditional relationship is two people, but polyamory has many different structures. And so let's just start out with something called a triad, which is just three people. Right there, right then and there, you have, instead of one relationship, you have six. And and you say, well, that's kind of weird. How do you go from one to six by adding a person? Well, because there's different dynamics. So just very briefly, I don't want to go, I don't have a diagram here, but let's say you had A and B as a couple, and now it's ABC. So with the couple, it was just AB. That's just one thing, and that's one relationship to take care of. But with ABC, now you have A has a relationship with B, A has a relationship with C, B has a relationship with C, right? And then each person has a relationship with the other two people as a, as a group. So AB has a relationship with C, BC has a relationship with A, <laughs> right? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So it gets very complicated. And yeah. so one thing that um, for poly people is communication um, becomes even more important. Uh, communication is important in any relationship, but it becomes even more important um, in a poly relationship because there's so many other dynamics going on. And so um, something that may feel very intimate for uh, a poly triad may not even be that sexual because they feel very intimate just sort of... um, exploring the different uh, aspects of, of the complexities of that relationship. Mm. And does that go back to the personality traits, like people who are more apt to explore polyamory have more of that O? What, it's, it's, it's very high for them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and people who are kinky, well, doing some sort of intense BDSM scene could be very, in fact, um, I'm doing research right now um, to understand the uh, the kind of the subjective experiences of people who participate in BDSM. And overwhelmingly, they say after they do a scene, they feel so close to the other person. And so, and oftentimes BDSM isn't even sexual in the sense of like, uh, you know, like penis and vagina. Yeah. yeah. Like you could have someone flogging someone and smacking them and and, and, and there's no genitals even exposed potentially, but yet they feel that it is sexual in mm-hmm. nature and they feel it's just so intimate Yeah, and it has nothing to do with this eye-gazing stuff. Um, so right. I, I right. don't want to put the eye-gazing stuff down because it's a valid form of intimacy. Sure, and that works for some people and that's fine for right. them, you know? Um, so we're not saying that like people who do uh, believe in that, that they should change their beliefs, but they should just be more understanding of people who don't need that. That's right. That's right. Right. So couples, let's talk a little bit more about couples, because I know you do a lot of work with them. Mm-hmm. 
what happens or how do you work with couples who come to you and they're like, you know, my husband's a total O. Like he just wants it all the damn time. And I, you know, I'm not really feeling it like that. And also he wants to experiment and I'm not. So this whole mismatched desire uh, thing, how do you work with couples on that? Well, I think it's a pretty complex subject because there's a number of reasons why people present with mismatched desires, right? So on a very basic level, just to simplify things, one person wants more of either quantity or type of sex than the other person does, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then you, you have to assess why is there this discrepancy. So it could be very simply that they were once having sex and now one partner is resentful or the sex was bad and they no longer want to have sex. So there is desire discrepancies when one person doesn't want to have sex at all and they're resentful of their partner. Or maybe one person wants sex a lot and the other person says, I want it three or four times a week, but I don't want it twice a day. And that's a very different issue. And then there's another issue where someone says, well, I've been hiding this from you because I felt ashamed. What I really want to do is tie you up and spank you. And, and the other says, that's disgusting. I would never do that. So mm. these are all things that kind of fit under that umbrella. So I, I re- first of all, I really want to kind of understand what's going on there. And I want okay. to understand what's going on in the relationship. Um, but, but here's some things to think about, right? So someone, let's just, because we're talking about kinks and, or, and stuff like that. Let's say somebody comes out as having some sexual preference that is really unappealing to the other person. So what do, what do they do in that situation, right? And it's pretty complex. And as we talked about personality, because you said, oh, the one partner may be just very exploratory, while the other one, their O is like 20, 20, 20% out of 100. So they're really not interested in, in trying anything new. Or they have a very low threshold for adventuresomeness, mm-hmm. being adventurous. Well, that's a problem. That's a, well. That's a problem, and they have a few. They have a few. Uh, they have a few choices. So first is that the partner who is not into this somehow a process where they agree to try it in some way, shape, or form. Like so, maybe like like dip an, their toe in, like just like a mild yeah. form of it. Yeah. So there's like an onboarding process. So maybe they right, like you said, there's something more mild. They can see if they like it. In my experience. If people really don't like something, it's kind of like that hard wiring thing. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult for them to all of a sudden say, this is the best thing since sliced bread. Right. So, um, Either often, it's there or it's not. Yeah. And so oftentimes what happens is they may try to fake it to please their partner. And it's a lousy experience because their partner wants someone who's thrilled to be doing it. Mm-hmm. They want to feel excitement. Sure. And they can see that their partner is sort of like, you know, kind of grimacing. This yeah. is, uh, I hate this. And it puts a damper on everything and everyone's unhappy. Mm-hmm. So we can try sort of like to kind of do some intermediary steps, intermediate, I should say, and try it out and, and see if there's a middle ground. That may or may not be successful because the person may have, they may have sort of like a um, an ambivalence about it, which they're not sure if they like it or not, but they're open to try. Or they may have a disgust. Right. And if they're truly disgusted, trying to force them to do something, uh, well, we don't want to do anything that's not consensual. But even them trying out of willingly to do something that's really unappealing to them usually never really works out. Right. 
I mean, it'll either end up in like, they'll just start cracking up laughing because they think it's absurd, you know, and which makes the other person feel bad because they're kind of turned on by it, Mm -hmm. you know, or they they build resentment because they feel like they're giving up a part of themselves that they don't want to. That's right. I mean, you'd be surprised. Sometimes people reveal something and their partner is, wow, I was waiting for you to ask. And that happens too. But we're talking about people where really it's a struggle. Yeah. Um, So I'll explore that, but I also know there are limitations. And if the person has a high level, the partner has a high level of resistance, it doesn't necessarily bode very well for things working because I want both people to be happy and not have bad experiences trying to forced away to do something right, right? and so, sex is a big part of a partnership so it's in my opinion so yeah, it's agreed. kind of like you know at what point does it make sense to just break up well i'm going to get to that because that's a good that's a good point so the second possibility which i do not advocate but i'm just kind of thinking rationally aloud and people do make this choice and they have the right i don't think it's the best choice but people have the right is that person a the person that wants to do something they suppress it. So they'll watch porn, but they just won't do it because their partner doesn't want to do it and they don't want to break the agreements of their relationship. Mm, the monogamy. But, yeah, and my, my colleague, one of my colleagues calls it an, an existential crisis because it's a crisis between your desires and your, your agreements that you've mm. made with other people in your life. Yes. And it's a tough one because you said you're going to do X, Y, Z, but... Now you realize you really want to do something, and something has to give. That's my and new s- phrase now, existential crisis. Yeah, well, i got <laughs> to tell you, it. existential crisis, this is more of an offline topic, but existential crises are great learning opportunities, and they happen all kinds. They don't just happen sexually, but yeah, this is a perfect example of an existential crisis happening in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. So, so one choice that I don't advocate, but people have free will, is, sure. is that person A just suppresses it and just fantasizes and watches porn. Um, the third one is don't ask, don't tell, which I think for some people is very viable, where it's actually very compassionate, I think, where person B says, look, I really hate this thing. It's disgusting to me, mm-hmm. but I know you want it so bad, but I want to stay married or whatever to you or in a relationship, and we, we have to come to an agreement where I understand that to be you, you have to express this some way but it bothers me, so we come up with a don't ask, don't tell arrangement. And people do that, yeah. and it works for a lot of people. For some, it doesn't because they have higher levels of, again, personality traits. Some people are a little bit more jealous than others and so on, and some people have um, different, uh, what's called differentiation. They're more poorly differentiated, which means that they're unable to allow their partner to be an individual. They're a little bit more codependent. Wow. So it works for people who who are have the individual capacity to tolerate that. Um, But I think it's a good solution for some people. So you're basically saying, go ahead and go explore that, but just don't tell me that you've done it. That's right. Okay. Because they know that that would bother them because they're really not. Yeah, they just don't want to even know. It's better to not know. Yeah. And what's the third type? Or what's the third option, I should say? Well, the the first is B goes along with it and hates it. A suppresses it and hates it. Um, C is don't ask, don't tell, or D is, as you said, you know, some relationships aren't meant to last, and um, and they decide to go on part ways. And for some people, that might be the best thing. You know, 
as a as a couples therapist, my bias because the couple comes to me if they want to if they want to work on it, my bias is to try to explore every avenue to save the relationship. Like I'm not going to be like I could think to myself, these folks aren't going to make it. Like you know, I don't know. People have surprised me, but I could have that thought, like that little light bulb, go off in my head. Mm-hmm. But I still advocate for seeing can we explore how to make this work unless there's like some abuse going on or something but if if both people are you know there's no abuse there's nothing terrible going on i try to see if i can we can fix this without breaking up but sometimes breaking up is is the best option for people yeah yeah. How do you then help, let's say breakup does happen, how do you then help guide um, each person toward finding their community or their place where they feel that they can most be themselves and find someone else to explore this stuff with or not? Well, I think community is a, is a big part. Um, I think any time that you are trying to wrap your mind around or integrate a new aspect of yourself into your identity you want to swim in waters that are amongst allies, among people who get you, yes. among people that you feel you know, are your species, so to speak, right? So um, I think community plays a very big role. For some people, it's transitionary. Um, they may go into a certain scene or community for a while and then exit because they got whatever value they wanted out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have to stay there. I think most people who practice whatever it is that they do, whether it's polyamorous relationships or some sort of BDSM arrangement or swinging or anything like that, they tend to do it outside of a scene, although they may they typically have started finding out and exploring within a scene, but then they don't necessarily stay in that scene and they're, they do things more privately. So there would be private I call them private players. You know, they don't like go to um, a, a public party. They don't go to a dungeon, you know, or anything right. like that. Mm-hmm. They do it in the comforts of their own private space. And that works for a lot of people. But for a lot of folks, finding a community is a good, tra- either it's a final destination or it's a good transition step. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's a lot of questions that people have. Because if they, if they grew up in a milieu, you know, in, a, in an environment where they're hiding things, and you'd be so surprised. You, you talked about Fifty Shades of Grey and the internet and all that. A number of my clients are so deeply ashamed. Like I have one guy who ha- is turned on by the idea of handcuffing a woman, you know, like consensually, just like it's sure. like, a, like, you know, kind of like a, creating a scene mm-hmm. where he handcuffs her and doesn't do anything rough but kind of essential but just the idea of handcuffing her and, and being turned on by it, it just makes him so ashamed that um, he just he, he finds it he's, he finds himself completely isolated. And, um, and when I talk about him exploring within the context of a community, he feels ashamed of admitting it to a community that he knows would be accepting. That's how deep the shame wow. is, right? Wow. And so it doesn't really matter, you know, about, I mean, Fifty Shades of Grey and the internet and social media is all very helpful, but, if, but, but there's a big difference. And I think this is a central idea for people to understand, and it's a central aspect of my work. There's a very, very big difference between knowing and understanding and believing. So you could know that 
your fetish is not shameful. You could understand why, but you could still not believe it. Yes. Wow. And yeah, I mean, we've done a lot of talking about limited belief systems on a variety of interviews. And so they do tend to be deeply rooted. Yeah. So you could you could have all the kind of stimuli, media stimuli, and, and you could read books and stuff. And even and, know that people are there that are struggling just like you, but yet you still feel shame about it. You still, it's so deeply rooted that um, it's still paralyzing you. And so I think you know, and I outline different steps in my book of what people can do to overcome this kind of paralysis. And I think fundamentally, um, it starts with people have to kind of the way I envision it is just sort of imagine three concentric circles and sort of that middle interior circle, let's call that the comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And we all have a comfort zone. These are all things that we do on a daily basis that cause us no anxiety. We get up in the morning, we get a cup of coffee, we do whatever, no anxiety, it's in our comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And then the, the far out circle, the third one, the outer layer, is the panic zone. So if we're so far outside of our comfort zone, so far out, then we're so spiked with anxiety that we're filled with terror, we run back to the comfort zone and we've learned nothing. In fact, we are traumatized. <laughs> so what we want to do is go to the middle layer, but maybe like the outskirts of the comfort zone, right at that inner edge of the outer of the middle layer, and that's called the learning zone, where we're exposed to moderate levels of anxiety, and we tolerate it, we see the anxiety is okay, it doesn't hurt us, nothing happened, and as a result, a comfort zone expands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they always say, like, you have to have discomfort in order to grow. You're not going to get anywhere if you keep staying in your comfort zone. Yes. There was a psychiatrist um, who, you, who coined, his, he was Polish, his name escapes me, who coined this term positive disintegration, which he basically said people grow from adversity. So the point is, the adversity can't be, you know, so horrible that you are just flooded with terror and you, get, you got nothing out of it. But if you take a small step that you planned and willingly expose yourself to very small increments of anxiety, you can then inch your way forward and expose yourself to more and more until your comfort zone has expanded. And that's and, and, and part of what I do with clients is I help them kind of create a guide map of what they can do to and, and this is this gets to the heart of what I said a moment ago about the difference between knowing and believing. To change your beliefs, you have to have experience. It's not enough to read something. You have to have the lived experience. Mm -hmm. And something that I say to people, I say, look, you know, you can, someone tells you about their life and you can understand everything they say and you nod your head and you say, that's really tough, but you don't really understand. You don't really know unless you've been in, there, in that shoes, in those shoes, until, unless you've lived it. So there is no um, replacement for action. And, and one thing that I talk about in my book is how action changes our feelings and our beliefs. So, um, for example, there was a study where they had people who were depressed go for two hours and practice smiling and making small talk with cashiers and stuff like that. And then they came back and took the test again for depression, and they found that their mood had lifted 
because they <laughs> because they just practice smiling totally. and they practice doing nice things. Totally. That makes total sense. Like there are times when I'm just not in the mood to do something. Like I'm I'm committed to going to an event or something. Mm-hmm. And then I force myself to go like, Ugh, I paid for this thing, so I mm-hmm. got to go. But then I'm so glad that I went. I'm totally, right. totally happy once I walk out of there. It's interesting. That's right. That's right. So this is what I say. I say, look, part of a big part of my job, I think, is psychoeducation. I'm, I, I, you know, I'm a therapist, but I'm also doing a lot of be, the role of an educator. Yeah. Um, but what I tell people, I said, look, your beliefs, sorry, your uh, your thoughts and your feelings influence your behavior, right? And your feelings influence your thoughts, your thoughts influence your feelings. They all influence each other. It's all like a ping pong going back and forth. Mm -hmm. But the low-hanging fruit, not the easiest, but the easier, not easy, but the easier of the three to change, the low-hanging fruit is behavior. Changing your behavior is, is easier not easy, but easier than changing your thoughts and your feelings. Wow. And by changing your behavior, your thoughts and feelings will change as well. That's the low-hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. So, Like I you could have, be exercising and hate it. <laughs> My feelings about this are that I hate doing this. <laughs> but you know what? I'll tell you what. Let's say you wanted to, you had a plan, you wanted to lose X amount of weight or you wanted to gain X amount of pounds of muscle or whatever that, whatever you're trying to do. Um, and you may hate um, exercising and probably a lot of people do, especially if they haven't been fit for a while. There's Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty challenging. It's challenging. <laughs> and they already probably already have certain dispositions about the gym, predispositions. But um, I'll tell you what, if you have a guide like a trainer who holds you accountable and you go and you do small behaviors that add up that you start to then see results. And after three months, you're like, wow, my body is changing. Don't you think your, your, your thoughts mm-hmm. and feelings would change too? Totally. You'd be like, Oh, all right. Now I think I want to go back to the gym and keep working on this. Right. This is great. Yeah. So within the context of the, the kink world or uh, polyamory or any of those more considered alternative lifestyles, what are the, like, the most important takeaways um, with what you just talked about for that particular community? So first of all, no study has ever shown that there is a connection between kink and pathology, between that and some kind of mental disturbance. People in the kink or BDSM communities do have challenges, but nothing that deviates from a community sample, right? So there's no correlation to pathology or mental health problems. Um, the other thing is that for some people, it's so hardwired that it's probably experienced akin to an orientation. While for others, even if they only consider it to be a leisurely activity, their um, temperamentally, their personality is wired to be more adventurous and exploratory. Um, and, and it's so, okay. And it's all of this is okay. And I mean, there's really good books out there about BDSM, about how to be, um, you know, aware and safe and consensual and all that. You can look these things up online. And there's so many references and resources. But in general, um, there's a lot of good things that happen in the King community. It's it, it, there's it's a it's a, a venue for people to explore their selves and their identity. 
It's for them to meet other people that are like-minded. And it's a really good opportunity to practice issues around consent, discussions about boundaries. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a study that came out that showed that people in the BDSM community had much better communication skills around consent and around boundaries than people who are not. And another aspect to it is that for some, um, it's actually experienced as healing. It's cathartic. Mm-hmm. You know, so they can get into some psychological headspace with someone that they trust, and they could feel all these feelings and pain and tears, and you, would, you might see that they're screaming and, and teary, and so you think something horrible is going on, but they're going through a really cathartic experience that they are safe to do in that boundaried area of their scene. And so a lot of people who practice BDSM find it to be to have therapeutic um, aspects to it, actually. So, um, again, I, I, I think people go to practice different behaviors for different reasons. One thing that I always say is you could have 10 people in a room doing the same thing, but for 10 different reasons. <laughs> but, so we don't, we don't want to say that all of these 10 people are all hardwired in the same way and they all have the same motives and all that. But what I can say is these are not... Um, compared to a random group of community sampled uh, population, these are not people who have some sort of mental problems. These are not people who um, have had more of a trauma history. These are people who t- oftentimes, at least 50% of them, have known they, w- they were into this from a very young age. There's another group of people who really enjoy it because they like the adventure and they like the relational aspects of it. And for some people, they find it to be very therapeutic and a really positive. And a lot of people find it to be a very positive aspect of their of of, of their um, identity in their daily life. So overall, um, I think that whatever if people come um, who don't know much about it have whatever kind of um, uh, stereotypes that they bring to it, they're probably quite wrong. Mm-hmm. So if you're out there and you're like judging this lifestyle in some way, hopefully you've learned something new about it today that'll make you have a little bit more understanding and compassion. Even if you choose to still not try it out yourself, if you're not kind of hardwired in that way, at least you can say, well, that's cool that they do that, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the big takeaway for me from this is that we're, you know, as I mentioned, and I grabbed it from from your book, helping readers understand that their desires and those of others can happily exist on the same continuum. I love that phrase so much. Nice. Well, you summed it up quite well. I could have said it better myself. Dr. Aaron, thank you so much for taking time to come on Nothing Off Limits and share all this amazing work that you're doing. Um, tell us how to get a hold of your book. You can look up Modern Sexuality, Michael Aaron, on Amazon.com. You can buy it that way. I would assume you could go How to... How come your... you didn't put doctor in front of it? Well, that wasn't my choice. The uh, publishing house... <laughs> I just have my taskmasters, you know. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm the workhorse. I come up... I wrote the thing, and then from there, it went on the assembly line. And then I guess it seems cooler if you're not a doctor. <laughs> it, it pushed me away. No, you know what? I, I, there was a few of my colleagues who worked with the same publisher, and they, the publisher didn't, they're also doctors, and the, doc, and the publishing house didn't use, didn't describe them that way either. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't offended or anything. Yeah, I yeah. think that's sort of the way that they preferred to do it. 
um, I, it, it, I don't really care. I don't get tied up in titles, but um, it's it's. I think it's a good book. Um, a number of people have it's read it. It's a great it. book. Thank you so I, much I really for my copy. It. Yeah, I appreciate I appreciate your thoughts. Um, the reviews are good. I'm getting the reviews coming in. They're really good. So, look, the bottom line is I wrote the book based on the experiences of what I do in my office and the the the, the stories of my clients. The, the stories of the real people I've worked with over a number of years. I share a lot of case histories. Obviously, all identities are, are hidden, so you, you know it's all anonymous. But you see a lot of the internal stories of the real people that, I, that I've worked with over a number of years. And basically, I wrote the book because um, I only have so many hours in the week to see people. I'm just one person. A typical session is 45 minutes, uh, a couple is an hour. So I only have so many hours in the week. But, but I think that there's a lot of people who, based on the kinds of stories that I hear in my office, I think there's a number of people all over the country and all over, all over the world who are having some sort of a struggle with their sexuality. So I wrote the book to reach far more people, to reach the people that I can't see in my office so that Anyone who is having a struggle, they could have the resource to to learn and to help themselves. That's awesome. You're taking it to be a world changer, to the level <laughs> of world changer, and I love it. Everybody out there listening, get your copy today. Modern Sexuality, The Truth About Sex and Relationships, Michael Aaron, uh, search on Amazon, and please go to his website, drmichaelaaronnyc.com. Dr. Aaron, it's always a pleasure speaking with you, and once again, thank you so much for spending time with us on the show. Glad to be here. It was awesome. Have a great topic you'd like to hear discussed on an upcoming episode of Nothing Off Limits? Email us at ideas at ladyfoxentertainment.com. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate the show, and go to ladyfoxentertainment.com to sign up for our email list and to check out our resources page. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.